Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week we ask, who's winning the economic debate on Brexit? Coming up, we'll hear from a prominent Brexiteer, the MP David Davis, whom I went to speak to in Westminster. They're almost like an argument in the middle of a rather bitchy divorce. You know, you leave, I'm going to punish you. That's, that's what the arguments come down to. And we'll hear from Philip Legrain, former special economic advisor to the president of the European Commission, giving us his two euro cents on the matter. If Britain voted to leave, uh, then it would be open season for every protectionist interest uh, in the EU to try and gain an advantage. But remember when this referendum fuss all started? Eight months ago, I spoke to political adviser Dominic Cummings about the referendum. There wasn't even a date on the cards yet. Well, now Cummings is regularly in the headlines as campaign director for Vote Leave, the main Leave campaign. And I asked him then about the practicalities of a Brexit. Be precise for me, if you could, what would you be saying no to in this referendum and what would be the likely consequence? Britain leave the next day, the next year? So as a matter of just legal fact, the next day nothing would change. Essentially what would happen is that a new British government team would have to go and negotiate a new deal with the European Union. It would hash out what that trading arrangement would look like. Um, it's also possible, I think, that if the British did say no, it would be such a big, uh, such a huge event, really, in European history that there would be a lot of soul-searching on the continent as well about, uh, uh, about how they are going to respond to that. You can imagine a situation in which there is a deal where we say, OK, you Euro countries, plough on, you want to do this, we'll stop blocking you, we'll stop getting in your way, as we have done over the last 20 years, you guys go ahead and do that but we are going to take back power in various areas ourselves. And that's the flip side of the deal. So no wouldn't necessarily mean out. It's, at the moment, it's really impossible to say. It, it would, In terms of what the British public would have voted for, it, it would mean that because that's the question on the ballot paper. But how the British government and the European governments respond to that vote is an unknowable thing at the moment. If it seems likely the new bailout deal doesn't happen, it could well be that they decide to bring forward themselves their timetable for a new treaty before 2025 and roll that into the British negotiations. So it's a very, very complex, multidimensional situation and very unclear now how things will look in, in at the end of 2017. Dominic Cummings there. Since then, the campaigns have become a lot more internecine and sometimes even vicious. No, we did not get a reformed European Union. And so the logical position is to therefore say we have to leave the European Union. Britain needs to stay in the EU as the best framework for trade, manufacturing and cooperation. Because negotiating on behalf of the EU is like trying to ride a vast 28-man pantomime horse with everybody pulling in different directions. And the United Kingdom is at its best when it's helping to lead a strong Europe. 
But the EU has tried to stand in the way of the companies driving this change. The next thing we know, the Leave camp will be accusing us of faking the moon landings, kidnapping Sherga, and covering up the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. And it's clear that despite all the to and fro on Hitler's European vision or what impact it'll have on the import of bananas play their part, well, both sides need to get to the economic and trade arguments. George Osborne has wheeled out Treasury figures emphasising the cost of leaving the EU to individual households and to the nation as a whole. The former Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, on the Brexit side, counters with promises of shiny new trade deals to replace the relationships lost. So to take the temperature of the Brexit wars, I popped in on a Westminster veteran. I've come into Portcullis House here at Westminster to see David Davis. He's one of the most prominent Conservative Party supporters of Brexit, possibly the result of spending time as Minister for Europe in the 1990s. Davis fought David Cameron for the Conservative Party leadership in 2005. He's been Shadow Home Secretary and now he's on the opposite side of the fence to the Prime Minister. But he hasn't always been such a prominent Brexiteer, so why does he think it's in Britain's interests now to get out of the EU? Well, I, I, you say I've been a Brexiteer. I was indeed before the campaign started, but it took me sort of about 20 years to get to that point of view. I mean, I was a Europe minister 20 years ago, a bit less than, but near enough. And in those days, we were still making the same arguments. You know, this is a flawed organisation, but we can reform it. Every time we decentralise, it centralised. Every time we tried to make it less intrusive, it became more intrusive. So, you know, as Einstein says, you know, if you try and do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, that's the definition of insanity. And where we are now, we've been trying over and over again, and it just doesn't work for us. It used to, but it doesn't now. A lot of the argument on trade, prosperity and how we'd actually fare in the event of leaving the EU turns on the risk factor, doesn't it? You're of the view it doesn't work well for us, other people say it does work okay for us, but either way there is a risk factor to leaving. How do you deal with that? The first thing is to establish what it is you're losing. Now, let me be clear, the first 20 years of being inside what was then the common market was actually pretty much unalloyed. Uh, good for us. It was very good, you know. Uh, certainly up until 85, probably up until the early 90s, we did well in our exports to Europe, much better than we'd done before, better against our comparators, our competitors and so on. But then it started to go wrong. And for reasons not all of it's Europe's fault, I mean, the Uruguay round brought down common external tariff barriers. So our advantages of being inside the tariff barrier evaporated. The single market Everybody thinks the common market good, single market better. Actually not. It's heavily regulated. It's a single regulatory space, if you like. All these things didn't work for us. So that's the first thing. We haven't got so much to lose anymore. It's been a very different argument. We've been having this argument in 1985. Secondly, the arguments that are often put, they're, 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 almost, they're almost like an argument in the middle of a rather bitchy divorce. You know, you leave, I'm going to punish you. That's, that's what the arguments come down to. If you leave, we won't give you any deep terms. We won't do this. We won't do Well, actually, I've been through this before with the Europeans. There'll be a sort of frenetic three months in which there'll be lots of whinging and whining and screaming and shouting, uh, the, with the French leading the cabal. I mean, that, that'll be how it goes, because that's the way the politics plays. Uh, and then what will happen is it'll calm down. And a lot of the countries will think, uh, oh, actually, we can't afford the default option, which is the world trade option. We can't afford that because that puts a 10% penalty on our car exports to Britain. This is a big, thriving market. The very thing that brings uh, immigrants here to get work 
also brings lots of products here. You know, cars, French wine, cheese, uh, you name it. Now, they need our market as much as we need them. Now, there's lots of people say, oh, well, it's 40% of our exports and only 4% of theirs. That misses the point. If you're Angela Merkel and you're in an election year in a year or two's time, and you're turning around and saying, well, actually, I'm sorry, uh, German car and I'm sorry, Audi, I'm sorry, BMW, I'm sorry, Mercedes, I'm sorry, Volkswagen, uh, but you're all going to have to take a 10% hit on the fastest growing market in the, in the European Union. They'll, they'll explode. It won't happen. I put David's point to Philip Legrain when I called him. Legrain works with the LSE's European Institute, but he spent many years as an economic advisor to the president of the European Commission. Philippe, we've heard claims from out campaigners that Britain would be able to get a very different trade deal and perhaps a better one if it quits the EU. How realistic do you think that is? I think that's completely deluded. Uh, the fact is uh, that exports uh, to Britain matter much less to the EU than exports to the EU do uh, to Britain. Uh, and that uh, in the event of Britain leaving, all the firms in Europe that compete with Britain would see this as an opportunity to gain a competitive advantage, whether that's German car manufacturers or French farmers or financial centres around Europe. Let's dig into that point, if we could, on one example about trade. If I were a German car manufacturer, I would still need access to British markets, so perhaps it wouldn't really suit me, and that's a, a, a very substantial uh, part of, of trade with Europe, it wouldn't stop me to cut myself off from British markets. So why would it matter whether I was in or out? Uh, because from the perspective of a German uh, car manufacturer, uh, if Britain had just left the EU, the pound had plunged its value and therefore suddenly uh, uh, British cars were potentially very cheap, uh, you would want to protect yourself against British cars by requiring tariffs or non-tariff barriers to raise their relative cost. If Britain voted to leave... Uh, then it would be open season for every protectionist interest uh, in the EU to try and gain an advantage. I can give you an example. In 2008, when the pound plunged during the financial crisis, Nicolas Sarkozy, the then French president, wanted to impose emergency safeguards in the single market. And because of EU law, uh, he was prevented from doing so. If Britain were to leave the EU, uh, there would no longer be uh, the safeguards against uh, those kind of protectionist interests, which would say, hang on a minute, why is it fair that British cars be dumped in uh, European markets? Or how is it that unregulated uh, financial or less regulated financial institutions uh, in Britain can gain an unfair advantage uh, in Europe? We need to protect ourselves uh, against this. David Davis, let's look to the state of the campaigns. Who's campaigning better? Oh, <laughs> this can be a slow bicycle race. <laughs> um, I think... On balance, I'd give it, and only on points, I'd give it to vote leave, but only on points. I don't think either uh, side is making the best of all the arguments yet. Uh, I think the government, qua the in campaign, the, the two together, the main campaign, the government operating together, have persuaded a lot of people that they're sort of trying to cheat slightly with the nine million spent on the leaflets, with the unit set up in number 10, with the restrictions and constraints put on ministers. 
That, that creates a bit of a sour taste and that doesn't help their argument. Right? Secondly, they've relied very, very heavily on what you might think of as the international gravy trade, the international establishment, whether it's Obama or Christine Lagarde or Pascal Lamy and so on, on the presumption that we're going to believe them, which I think is a sort of misunderstanding of how British people think about this. Quite a lot of the sort of anti-EU feeling is an anti-establishment feeling too. So that's not working very well. I think on the on the vote leave side, I think they've done uh, okay with the uh, most of the arguments, but there have been sort of bits that have flown off at the edges. I mean, uh, I, I don't think necessarily Boris's argument on, on Hitler was terribly good. Just after Cameron's argument on World War Three. I mean, neither of those arguments for me were very persuasive. Philippe, we've been through a week here where we've had the state opening of Parliament, a bit overshadowed by the fact that the main event is taking place in a few weeks' time on Referendum Day. So how do you think the campaign is going? Who do you think is winning? I think on the economics, uh, it's pretty clear that Remain uh, are winning. You can see that in the desperation where the Leave camp are no longer talking in positive terms about economics and instead talking about in negative terms about the threat from immigration. But I think, you know, the polls are very clear. It's neck and neck. Uh, and at a time of anti-establishment rage um, and general disenchantment with politics, uh, many people seem to think that somehow leaving the EU would create their own personal version of utopia. And therefore, there's a, you know, a, a very real risk that uh, Britain could unfortunately vote uh, for Brexit. How important do you think immigration and particularly this new, very large migrant wave is here. You've written extensively about this, but of course what happened last year and also Germany's decision to take a very, very large number of migrants has exactly fueled the argument of the people who say we don't really want this. Well, Germany, of course, has accepted a large number of refugees uh, over the past year uh, and as argued in a new study published today uh, by Manu Think Tank, Open and the Tent Foundation, uh, refugees have a lot to contribute to the economy. Uh, but clearly some people in Britain take a different view. Uh, and they are not affected by uh, Germany's decision to admit refugees because Britain is not part of the Schengen area and therefore they're not free to move here. Uh, and also because we're not participating in the EU's programme uh, to resettle refugees. So if you look at the number of asylum seekers Britain received last year, it was roughly 30,000, which is in line with how it has been in, in recent years. In terms of EU migration, it is true that EU migration has increased uh, over the past decade. But studies overwhelmingly show that uh, EU migrants are, are, are more likely to be employed. Uh, they pay more in taxes than they take out in benefits. And of course, Britain gets reciprocal benefits from freedom of movement. So look at how many British pensioners are retired in Spain, where of course they benefit um, uh, from free health care from the Spanish Health Service. We discussed migration and the impact of immigration on this argument with, with Philip Legray. And he said, in essence, look, you know, this is something a lot of people do get worked up about, but you can't argue with the statistics and, as a view the economist has often put as well, that the net contribution of migrants, immigrants into Britain, whether from the EU and including beyond the EU, has been positive in overall economic terms. So people tend to blame it for things that are actually the fault of poor public services, poor decisions by government, or perhaps even other factors beyond their control. Are they right? Uh, he's wrong on pretty much all counts. I mean, firstly, it, only this week, Migration Watch did an assessment of the extent to whether uh, immigrants pay their own way in total, uh, and their their assessment was not that there were that there were negative to the tune of billions. But that is only part of the argument. I'm not against immigration, 
You know, I spent a long time as Shadow Home Secretary arguing the case with the then Labour government of immigration. My argument was always, it's got to be managed, it's got to be controlled, you've got to have the people you want, not necessarily just anybody who, who chooses to come here. And we're talking now about numbers, if you add up total immigration, not just European immigration, of the order of 600,000 a year, that's huge numbers of people, half of those broadly from the EU. Now, it does cause pressures on housing, it does cause pressures on schooling, it does cause some other public pressures, some of which are mixed. I mean, let, let's take the National Health Service. Quite a lot of people who work in the National Health Service uh, are, are migrants or, are one sort or another. Um, uh, and, but also there's a lot of pressure on the A&E and on, uh, and on primary services. So, of course, it causes problems. And, you know, if, you f- if Mr. Green will forgive me, you know, he's taking a very, uh, I sometimes think he's taking a Brussels view, but he's taking a very middle-class view of this. If you are living in parts of the east of England where you have difficulty getting a job uh, or where the job the the rate you're being paid for the job is being depressed because of immigrant labor you'll feel it and it, and it means a lot to you that's why Stuart Rose you know uh, leader of the Remain campaign uh, inadvertently told the, the Treasury Select Committee that actually wages would go up afterwards because it, because those pressures would be reduced. Mm-hmm. Let me throw you some of the big names who've been intervening in this campaign in the last week or so. Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, and on the other side, the Prime Minister and George Osborne. Take them in two halves. What's your advice for Gove and Johnson? Well, for Gove and Johnson, I think, remember that actually the facts are on our side to a very large extent and they should use them more. Um, not be afraid of the economic argument. I mean, there, you know, there, there, there was a tendency at the beginning of the campaign, not, not necessarily amongst them, but amongst some, to feel, oh, we don't actually want to give any hostages to fortune. Actually, you can't beat something with nothing. You've got to make the argument, you've got to make it stand up, and you've got to make it plausible, and you've got to make it based on facts. We can do that. They can do that. So that's my primary advice to them. And they're running scared of that? I think they're running scared of it, but I think, I think there's, a, there's a sort of nervousness about putting up a clear case because people will knock it down. I don't think they need to be nervous of that. We can win that one. And you've got to cross the floor, but you, you've been a, a treasured colleague, David Cameron and... George Osborne, what are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if they'll much take my advice, to be honest. I take it a bit less personally, actually. I think uh, David has said, you know, that he feels uncomfortable with Boris and, uh, and Michael. Don't take it but this is a This is an issue which is bigger than all of us. That's the first thing I'd say to him. Um, and, and people reasonably should have different views. Uh, it, I would think, if I had to give them advice, it would be rely less on the grand establishment and get back down to the real argument, you know, because I think they expected, for example, when Obama came here, this would sort of change the game. There wasn't a, there wasn't a measurable move in the polls in those few days, uh, and there were a lot of people saying, "What the bloody hell's it got to do with him?" You know that you know that <laughs> that's a risk. So get back to the facts, get back to the argument, get back to the uh, our own case. Don't start relying on on people from abroad. Bigger than all of us, you say, but also very, very big in the Conservative Party, and, and you know that having been uh, been very active there, but also as a, as a challenger in the past for, for the, the leadership when we first met. Do you think that the next leader of the Conservative Party will come from the ranks of Brimain or from the Brexits? Well, the conventional wisdom is bre- the Brexit side, um, and that's probably right, probably right, but it sort of depends when it is. Um, you know, if it's in two years' time, 
this may not this may not be relevant you know um, one of the things I've always said to people when they're trying to predict future leaders is always remember one year in advance we didn't see Thatcher coming we didn't see Major coming we didn't see Hay coming we didn't see Cameron coming you know one year in advance not one of those people was that was being talked up as a future leader and they, you know, if, if it's a couple of years away which is the most likely outcome then I think we haven't got the first idea and I suspect um, that what they did in this campaign may be a small part of their claim, but not very much. So how confident would you be, Philippe, that when all is said and done and we get to June the 23rd, that your side of the Remain argument will win? I think it's going to be very close. I think there is a compelling rational case uh, to stay in the EU because it would make us uh, richer uh, and uh, freer and safer uh, than to leave. Uh, at the same time, uh, there is a very real risk uh, that people, for uh, emotional uh, and confused reasons, um, uh, may vote to leave. And I think it would be disastrous for Britain, uh, and we'd live to regret it. Our thanks to David Davis and Philip Legrain there, both doing battle over the referendum. But who do you think is winning the economic arguments of Brexit? You can have your voice heard by tweeting us at Economist Radio or by emailing us radio at economist.com. And we'll be giving Brexit and Bremain further in-depth coverage as we hurtle towards the referendum on June the 23rd, examining the debates on security, sovereignty and UK PLC. You can follow all of that at economist.com. But from our Economist Asks this week, and from me, Anne McElvoy, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.